Think about it. In nature, there is not a single food that is high salt, high fat, and high sugar all at the same time. Not one. But majority of the foods that we get from the modern environment trigger three dopamine pathways that never have been triggered at the same time. And so our body responds by going, yes. Well, hello there. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. And today, we have one of the most unique stories of recovery that you will ever hear. We're going to hear from someone who thought that he didn't want to live. Flat out, Adam Sud attempted suicide. But he survived. And he went on to heal his mind, heal his body, and his soul. And his comeback included far more than just therapy. Because Adam overhauled his eating habits, he turned to a plant-based diet. And now years later, it is that way of eating, that new lifestyle, that he credits largely for eight years of sobriety. Adam, he is known as the plant-based addict, and he is one of a kind. And he is also using his story, his real-life experience, to pull others out of the darkness. And so as we hear his story today, we will be asking a pivotal question. What role does food play in getting us to the breaking point? And how can it help pull us back? Adam is here to share his thoughts on that very question. Plus, Dr. Neil Barnard will be here to answer another great question as we open up the doctor's mailbag. And couples, you're going to want to listen up to this. What happens when one person in the relationship wants to go vegan, but the other is dragging their feet? Well, Dr. Barnard has some advice to keep both the diet and that relationship happy and healthy. But first, the story of addiction, attempted suicide, survival, and the road back. A couple of weeks ago on The Exam Room Live, I was speaking with Adam Sud, hearing his incredible story of overcoming addiction, a suicide attempt, turning to a whole food plant-based diet and how that saved his life after he determined he wanted to live. And I said, there's so much more to this story that needs to be told. Would you please be kind enough to come on The Exam Room podcast? 
where we would have more time to talk about everything and the connection, the similarities between the addiction to food and substance addiction. And so I'm so excited today to welcome Adam Sud back to the exam room. My friend, I am so glad that you're here to continue this discussion with us. Oh man, I always like being on this show with you, and you know, I mean, we, you and I have a similar story. You know, we've we've connected in person, and uh, you know, I, I love having these conversations. Oh man, it's my pleasure, and and it's they're so meaningful. But hold on, who are you joined by? You're not alone today. Who is this? This is Maple. Say hi, Maple. <laughs> She's such a sweetheart. She is a Chihuahua dachshund, lovingly known as a Chihuini. Um, <laughs> She's what a about, great name. I know, right? She's, uh, she's about two years old. She's a street rescue. Um, um, came into my life and uh, didn't know, you know, where she came from. And was, you know, my first thought was, okay, let's, let's take her to the vet and see if she's chipped. Okay. Find out, yes, she was chipped. And we got in contact with the owner. The vet called the owner and said, listen, there's a gentleman here who's found your dog. Um, would you like to come here and pick her up? Or he's also offered to drive her over to you if you're willing to give him your address. And the woman said, no, the reason why uh, I, I got rid of her because I don't want her. So wow. this, this woman, unfortunately, threw, uh, threw out Maple. And that's when I asked the vet if they could simply ask this, this woman to confirm to them that she is surrendering the dog to me because I would like to take her home. And so that's what happened. And so her original name was Galaxy. Nah, nah, nah. She's too sweet for that. She's Maple. So she's, she's, she's wonderful. She is such a sweetheart. And she's vegan. Oh, there you go, Maple. Welcome to the club. Um, I, I, that just, it pains me to think that somebody would just give away a dog like that. The reason why you found her is because I didn't want her anymore. That's not yeah. okay. I know. I agree. Um, but you know what? Best thing that ever happened to her and it's made my life so great. So yeah, she's very, very loved. She likes to be in my lap at all times. So she's going to join us today. Yeah. You were telling me that, uh, that that's her spot and you that's weren't doing this interview if she wasn't joining the interview too. So Maple, welcome to the show, my friend. Yeah, Maple. <laughs> um, and, and by the way, I, I, I would love, uh, we'll, we'll, obviously the video of this is, is going to be up on the Physicians Committee's YouTube page and, and uh, Facebook page as well, but I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to screenshot this and tweet it out as well. I'm sure that you have some pictures of Maple on your social media accounts as well. I've got a few, yes. Yeah, I bet yeah. you people are super, super curious to see what Maple looks like. What, what, what is she called? A, a, a Chiawini? A what now? A Chiawini. A Chiawini. Chihuahua Dachshund. A Chihuini. That sounds like a Star Wars character. That is so <laughs> I know, <great>. right? <laughs> That's my first thought. That is so great. All right, man. Let's uh, let's get down to business because I could talk about uh, funny dog names all day, Chihuini. That's oh, that's just the best ever. Yeah. Uh, but I, I wanted to have you on to talk about a more serious topic and continue mm-hmm. our discussion about addiction food, substance abuse, how it's all intertwined. And picking up where we left off on the live show, we were talking about the similarities between food addiction and addiction to whether it be alcohol, tobacco, drugs, whatever the case may be, and how your brain elicits a response that just says, I love this stuff. And it doesn't matter if it's the food or if it's the drug, it's it's virtually 
the same thing. Sure. Yeah. You know, and so myself, I'm a person in long-term recovery from substance abuse. Um, in fact, next month, uh, I will have eight years of continued recovery. Oh, so, congrats, um, man. Thank you. Um, and you know, when I, when I got into recovery eight years ago, I was under the assumption that it was all about chemical hooks, right? That, okay, there was, I was addicted to stimulants and opiates and I thought, okay, that the issue was that there are these chemical hooks in the substances themselves that made it impossible for me to be able to give up what I was using. And yes, it's true. There are chemical hooks, right? But what I, what I've come to understand uh, from reading a lot of uh, work by a man named Johan Hari, uh, who did an amazing Ted talk called everything you know about addiction is wrong. He also has written in a fabulous book called lost connections about the truth of, uh, anxiety, depression, mental health, and the surprising solutions is that it's actually less about the chemical hooks than we originally believed. And I saw that play out in my own life. I saw that play out in my own recovery. And so I was able to look back before the substance abuse started and sort of identify, oh, yeah, there it is. Um, When we talk about addiction, I think it's very important to be mindful of how we use and how we define that term. Okay, because compulsion is a biological response uh, that is developed through the evolution of the species. uh, Right. We have a biological mechanism that we call pleasure. Okay, everybody's experienced pleasure as a result of a dopamine response. Okay, dopamine is a chemical that is created in the brain that gives us the excited euphoria that we call pleasure. And so people always like to throw this term out there. Oh, oh, it causes a dopamine response. Dopamine causes addiction. Well, dopamine is a necessary process to survival. Okay. So dopamine is our body's way of letting us know that whatever behavior we have just done has increased our statistical likelihood of survival or gene survival, right? Either keeping us alive or increasing the statistical likelihood that we will pass on our genes and create a line, like keep our genes alive. So this is the reason why food tastes good. And in fact, the more calories per bite, the greater the dopamine response because the more calories per bite, the greater the chances of us staying alive longer. Remember, we did not evolve from the modern environment. So our genes are not responding to the modern environment. It's responding as if the modern environment were the environment that we evolved from. Okay, it doesn't know that we're not earth connected, living in nature, eating you know foraged foods like tubers and fruits and vegetables from the ground and 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 stuff like that. It believes that when we take a bite of a cheeseburger, that this unbelievable amount of calories per bite, this combination of high salt, high fat, high sugar had to have come from nature naturally. It had to have fallen off of a tree. So it must be the right thing to continue doing because the dopamine response is so far outside the bounds of what the human body is accustomed to experiencing. And as well as it also believes that it has to be incredibly rare because of it. So if ever you have a chance to do that behavior again, do it because more than likely it's not going to be there again. So because the dopamine response is so high, the body feels this unbelievable necessity to compel you to do it again and again and again and again and again. And that's compulsion, right? That is a physical, biological response. It makes sense. It's reasonable. It has a purpose and it plays a role in our, in our survival. So a lot of people define compulsion 
as addiction. Oh, I just really want another one. I, I might get addicted to it. Well, compulsion is, yes, it is a symptom of addiction when someone is in the throes of addiction, but it isn't the cause, okay? And I think it's important to, to recognize that. The reason why modern foods have such a strong compulsion or creates such strong compulsions is because think about it. In nature, there is not a single food that is high salt, high fat, and high sugar all at the same time. Not one. But majority of the foods that we get from the modern environment trigger three dopamine pathways that never have been triggered at the same time throughout the entire course of our human evolution. And so our body responds by going, yes, I don't know what that was. We have never experienced anything like that before. If ever you can do that again, you have to do it because I don't know when we're ever going to get something like that again. It has to be the right thing to do. It feels like the right thing to do. Okay. And so for people who eat like a cake or, you know, a cheeseburger, which is high salt and high fat in the burger, and then they put ketchup on it, which is high sugar. And so you get the, this combination of dopamine pathways all triggered at the same time. And your brain just lights up like it's supposed to. This is not something odd happening. This is not your brain being forced to do something it's not, not supposed to do. This is, this is a biological response that makes sense. And so the body feels compelled to do it again. Now, when we talk about addiction, we have to look at it from a different perspective, okay? Because what I have come to understand about addiction and what Johan Hari also writes uh, a lot about, and this is where I learned most of this from, is that what addiction is, is uh, not wanting to be present in your life because your life has become too painful a place to be, okay? Human beings have this, unbelievable need to bond. We'll bond with people, we'll bond with purpose, we'll bond with ourselves and the world around us. Um, we, we have an unbelievable need to, to, to feel like our future makes sense, like our financial situation makes sense, like our, our social structure makes sense, that the world around us makes sense in a meaningful way. When those things are cracked or severed, We'll bond with anything that gives us pleasure because those, the disconnection from that meaningful bond is painful. And when we find something that allows us to escape that pain, when, the, when our authentic life is too painful a place to be, whatever the behavior is that we develop that allows us to escape that feeling, that's where addiction comes in. That's where the cheeseburger becomes very, very difficult to put down. That's when the heroin becomes very, very difficult to stop using. That's when the alcohol or the sex or the gambling becomes something that overwhelms your life because for some reason it felt for the first time ever you were in a state of unbelievable pain that you couldn't understand and then you did one thing and it was gone briefly and that brief moment of relief felt right to you and the idea of wanting to go back to a world where you felt disconnected and in pain and didn't understand why is too hard to fathom. Why would I want to go back there if this works? And in the short term, it makes sense, right? Like we're not thinking long term. Nobody starts using heroin thinking that their life 10 years is going to be fantastic, right? I know I didn't start using thinking that it was going to be the best decision I ever made in my life. But in the moment, it did. It felt like that. And so that's the difference between addiction and compulsion. And I really think it's important to put it out there, to put to people, you know, look, Drugs have never been anybody's problem. Drugs for the person who becomes a substance abuser, drugs are the greatest solution we've ever found. 
They were the greatest solution to a life we didn't understand. And once someone can grasp that and understand that, you can see that, that, that the situation that arises, the addiction that arises also makes sense. It's also meaningful. It's also a reasonable response to an abnormal way of living. The same way depression and anxiety are a reasonable response to an abnormal way of living. That depression that I was experiencing when I was so disconnected from myself, when I was ashamed, I had all this shame about my physical body, about my, for whatever reason, I didn't know why I couldn't get myself out of it. Uh, I had bought into these stories about what other people told me I needed to be and needed to do in order to be accepted. And so I sort of forgot myself and that was a painful experience. And so depression and anxiety, these signals that were arising were completely reasonable, right? They weren't a problem. They weren't as much a pathology as we want to believe. It wasn't something to be medicated and insulted. It was something to be listened to. It was something that I needed to pay attention to and lean into and say, okay, what is it telling me about how I'm living my life or the way that I move through the world? Because that's what they are. That's what these signals are for most people. And I'm not telling people not to take medication, antidepressants or anything like that. I think that those things, they serve a purpose. And I'm not a doctor and I don't want anybody to listen to this and say, I'm stopping taking my medication. That's not the point of this. What I want to do is share a... A, a, an outlook on mental health, an outlook on addiction that makes more sense than what we've been led to believe. All right. So uh, there, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Let's see if I, if I have this correct. Is it then possible based off of what you said for that compulsion? And, and we'll stick with food for this portion of it. it let's, yeah. let's say that somebody is, you know, compulsively eating a cheeseburger. They take that bite, they get the SOS, that dopamine response, that explosion, the likes of which we've never had in our brain before with the dopamine, right? That compulsion then can create a depression, self-esteem issues because a person becomes overweight, they start to feel bad about themselves. And that then is where the addictive component comes in. And it goes beyond just being a compulsion. That's when it becomes that, that relief mechanism. That's when things begin to feel normal again. But it was that compulsion initially without the addiction component that ultimately led them to being addicted. Is that correct? Yeah, for the most part. So like, for example, if, if I were to take you right now, okay, so you're someone who has taken, spent a lot of time and done a lot of work on reconnecting yourself to a meaningful life. You've really spent a lot of time getting in touch with your true self, your authentic way of being, right? You have a loving connection to who you are and what you offer the world, your, your value to others. You have created meaningful connections with other people. They see the value that you offer and you see the value that, that they offer you and the world around you. You've created a meaningful bond with the natural world around you. You see the impact that you have on it and that it has on your life, both for better and for good, uh, for, for good and for bad. Um, you also have uh, a now developed a, a, a future that makes sense, right? You know, you, you know what tomorrow looks like in a meaningful way and it seems good to you. If I were to take you and give you a cheeseburger, even a beyond meat burger and you were to eat it, your dopamine response would be exactly the same. Your likelihood of continuing that behavior would be far less than an individual who is not in your situation. An individual who is struggling with their self-love, who is struggling with 
meaningful bonds to people, to understanding the value that they offer others and having others see that value that they offer the world, right? So more so than the biological compulsion, because it'll be there for you. It's how meaningfully connected is your life when that opportunity arises. For someone who's meaningfully connected, has all these meaningful bonds that are very secure, the likelihood that you will continue that behavior is far less than an individual whose meaningful bonds are severed. How long did it take for you to make that connection yourself once you woke up on that apartment room floor after that, that suicide attempt? How long did it take for you to put all of these pieces together? Because what if somebody is listening right now and they are kind of very close to rock bottom, they are spiraling, they are circling the drain and they just be, may be ready to give up. How yeah. long was it before you started to make these connections and, and, and were able to grasp this full picture and truly begin the healing process? Oh, it probably took a year. So, you know, but, but the first thing that I asked myself when I remember waking up on the floor of my apartment after um, uh, my overdose as a result of a suicide attempt and feeling this immense amount of relief. And, you know, I've talked to other people who are suicide survivors and they'll tell you the same thing that they woke up and they felt unbelievable relief. And that in the moments before they blacked out or moments before they jumped or moments before they slit their wrist or the moment after they slit their wrist, that they felt an unbelievable amount of regret like that they instantly knew they had made the wrong decision. And the only reason why I know that I felt that way was because even though life was painful, even though life was almost intolerable, it wasn't because life wasn't something I wanted to be a part of. It was because the pain I was experiencing while living was intolerable, right? I wasn't trying to end my life as much as I was trying to end my pain. And so I wanted to understand what it was like, what it would be like to reconnect to whatever it was that made me wake up and say, oh, thank goodness I have another day. Because that's why the relief existed. That's why I was feeling so grateful that I had failed. Otherwise, I would just try it again. Mm. And so there had to be something so meaningful about myself, my life, the world around me, something about myself or my life and other people that I loved enough that another day was exactly what I wanted. And so recovery for me wasn't going to be about, you know, what was the matter with me or how do I get rid of these things I don't want? Instead of what was the matter with me, what matters to me, right? What do I want more of? Because I just, I know I spent years of my life trying to hate my, myself and my life enough to want to do something different. And it just further disconnected me from feeling alive. Um, this was going to be an attempt to love myself into a positive situation instead of trying to hate myself out of a battle because I just call BS on that ideology. I just don't believe in it. I don't believe it works for me. I think fear and hate are great for, for one specific reason. It highlights a meaningful bond in your life that's being threatened. Right. So my fear of dying highlighted the meaningful bonds in my life that I was about to lose. And those meaningful bonds were so strong and so impactful in my experience of being alive that the thought of losing them was the most terrifying thing I'd ever experienced, even though I was hurting. Mm. And so I took that as an indication 
to say that my purpose in recovery was to reconnect to those meaningful bonds. Now, I hadn't read anything of Johan Hari's yet, but when I did, it was like, it was like a light bulb turned on. That what if, what if my pain makes sense? What if I'm not a machine with broken parts? What if all this stuff I've been told about dopamine and serotonin and all this stuff play a role, but what if it's not the major role? What if my response to life, like I said before, was a normal response to an abnormal way of living? What if grief and anxiety and fear and anger, what if all of these things were signals that were arising in me that are as evolved and as meaningful as joy and love and excitement? What if they were telling me, what if it's a form of grief for our life not being lived as it should? Right? What if that's what it is? If that's what it is, and this isn't me failing, then this is me, this is my, my body telling me that there's something greater out there for me. And I've had it before. Otherwise, it wouldn't be telling me you want it back, right? Because I came into this world open and connected and accepting of myself and the world around me without judgment. And then at some point in my life, somebody or something told me differently and I believed it. And from that point on, that, that acceptance of self, that acceptance without judgment was, sat, was severed, right? I started to love myself only upon condition, right? I had to meet other people's standards first, then I could love myself. I had to meet the world's standards first, then I could accept myself. So constantly looking for outside uh, indications of success in order to feel like I was enough started the day that I believed somebody else's bullshit story about who I was supposed to be. What if that was the start of my depression and anxiety and it just grew louder and louder over the course of time? And I was never taught that it was okay to feel that way. I was not only was I never taught that it was okay to feel that way, I was never told it's okay to ask for help, right? We're, I, I was you know, raised in a culture that says, Fear and anger are something to fix, to get over. There's no getting over these things. There's, there's, there's sitting with them, just like I sit with joy and with happiness and with love and excitement, right? I don't, I don't get over that. I sit in it and I feel it and it directs me towards something greater. What if fear and anxiety are the same purpose? And so that was really what I wanted recovery to be about, not abstinence from substance abuse, because the substance abuse was a result of its ability to disconnect me from those feelings of fear and anxiety that, were, that, I, was, that I needed to hear, right? When they were really overwhelming and I wasn't taught or I never learned how to sit with them, drugs, gone. It was gone. And I could sit there and be like, oh, thank goodness, the noise is gone. Oh, thank goodness, I'm finally the person I think I'm supposed to be. It was like getting a big hug for the first time in my life and saying, as you are, I got you. Don't worry about this. We'll fix everything. Well, I needed to know how to do that myself. I needed to, to reconnect, to remember who I was before the world taught me differently. And I think that's what recovery really is about. Not about the substances. The substance is a symptom. It, it, it's not the cause. Okay. It's, it's a result of, 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 a, of a truly disconnected life. Mm. You are a soulful guy. Um, I, I want to go back and, and, and kind of revisit that, that question about how quickly, because it, it dawns on me. I'm thinking back to when I was overweight and mm -hmm. I desperately wanted to make a change, but then 
I would think like every little thing became an excuse to me not to make that change. And so I think it's plausible for somebody listening to this be like, well, it took him a year. I don't want to wait a year. I'm not going to, you know, that's my excuse not to change today. And every time, Adam, I would find these little excuses not to make the change myself, I felt a sense of relief. Like, oh, thank God I don't have to give it up today. I can keep going down this path today. But for you, even though it took a year to get to where you are, that's not to say that you didn't experience a better life every single day, almost immediately. Absolutely. You know, I spent 37 days in an inpatient rehab hospital and then I moved into sober living and that's where I adopted the plant-based diet. And, you know, I woke up and I would make these meals that were about health and wellness. They They were about trying to create a healthier version of myself today than I was the day before. And I would, And I would intentionally consider them acts of self-love and self-care. And I can always look back at my life before and go, well, the reason why I ever wanted to work out was because I wanted to not be who I was today, right? That was the point of it. I ever started a diet because I didn't want to be who I was today. And I told myself that this time I was doing these things, I was moving my body, going to the gym, walking on a treadmill. That's all I would do was I'd walk on the treadmill for 45 minutes. I'd walk on a treadmill or I'd eat a plant-based diet because I love myself today, not because tomorrow I could be lighter or have lower blood glucose because I was diabetic at the time or have lower cholesterol because I had heart disease or, or then, you know, I wake up with an erection again because I had ED. That wasn't the goal. It was that in this moment, I deserve it. Not when, but right now. And I always have been. And that I wanted to form a meaningful bond with these behaviors that would eventually create the type of life that I want to live. And, 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 you know, the fact is that if I'm meaningfully bonded to these behaviors, then I am living the life I want to live and it will show up. The positive changes will happen like running a race. Okay. If I'm running a race simply to get to the finish line, well, then my goal is to cross the finish line. It's not to run. Right. But if I want to become a runner and I'm running a race, the finish line is irrelevant, okay? Because not only can I not see the finish line when I start the race, I never have to. But what I have to do is focus on my pace, my step, and my breath, focus on the road in front of me, and keep doing that. And if I do that long enough, eventually I'll reach the finish line. But here's the kicker. If I fall in love meaningfully with the act of running, with my pace, my step, and my breath, and that road in front of me, I'm going to run for the rest of my life. And then the finish line becomes irrelevant. That's the kind of process I wanted to happen with plant-based nutrition, with self-love, with self-acceptance, with moving my body. I wanted it to be about loving these things so much that I didn't care when and if the diseases were reversed because I knew it was the right thing to do. Sobriety wasn't going to be about counting days not using. I didn't like that idea. I didn't want to be abstinent from substances. I wanted to live a life where substances just don't matter anymore. They're they're not going to be used that way anymore. They're around. Great. But my life is so meaningfully connected that I'm not trying to escape this way of living anymore because this way of living is so meaningful. I have the greatest friendships I've ever had in my entire life. I have the greatest relationship I've ever had with my parents and my brother and my sister that I've ever had in my entire life. I have love in my life. I have, you know, purpose that I get up every single day and I, and I work towards, I move my body in a way that I'm not trying to 
you know, burn calories. I'm trying to love what my body can do for me. And, and that's, that, that whole experience is not something I want to escape. I want, if anything, I want more of it. So the idea of substance abuse as an escape is completely removed, not because I avoided it, but because I built a life where they no longer are ever going to be used for that purpose. Your approach is so different from what the vast majority of us are taught as far as what the recovery process looks like. Yeah. But I think that if, if people look across a wide spectrum of people who have made these dramatic changes in their life, whether it be from substance abuse, losing weight, changing careers, whatever the case may be, I think that the people, by and large, that they will identify who have been the most successful long-term are those who think outside the box and yeah. find the path that works most for them. Because so often, we're handed this one-size-fits-all program, but you and I both know that one size does not fit all. There That's are, right. what, close to 8 billion people on this planet? You know, exactly. come on, man. There's, there's more than a handful of ways to get this done. Everybody has a different lived experience. Everybody has a different situation that they go home to. Everybody has different access to different things. Some people don't have access to enough. Some people have access to too much. Um, and so, you know, I mean, you think about it right now, for the first time in human history, obesity is a symptom of poverty. I mean, you have people who don't have enough, who have heart disease, diabetes, and obesity. You have people who have more than they could ever want Right. And I'm not I'm not saying that I have a problem with people who have too much money, but and they're starving themselves to fit in. There's there's such a disconnection between what it is to be fundamentally human that if we don't address that first, the rest is irrelevant. Right. You know, when someone comes into recovery, the first thing they do is they put them on medications, which I get and I understand and I appreciate when I checked into rehab, they put me on 13 medications, a lot of them psych meds, antidepressants, mood stabilizers, anxiety medications, ADHD medications, sleeping medications. And more than likely, if they hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have been able to have a conversation with them. I was so dysregulated. But I also think it's very important that we address the core fundamental aspects of being meaningfully alive as a human. What we eat, how much we sleep, how much water we drink, how much sunlight and air, fresh air we get, uh, how much movement we do how connected meaningfully we are with a community that understands us and that we bring value to and that they bring value to us, creating a future for ourselves that makes sense. Without these being addressed first, the rest doesn't matter. Hmm. You know, I mean, sure, it will make a difference, but it will never be the solution. You know, for sure. And for so sure. that's, that's, you know, that's what I really think is, is important. You know, we, people throw out the term and, and I'm, and I'm not saying people aren't food addicts, right? There, there absolutely are. I was one, I have a feeling you identify yourself as one as well, but more so than that is that you were dependent upon a behavior that for the first time in your life, when you did it, you felt free. You felt free from a pain you didn't understand, even though you knew it was hurting you in the long term. And that experience was too great of a thing to give up because the rest of your life was not making sense in any meaningful way. And that's what addiction is really about. So there's, I mean, you, you, you look at the statistics and this is not, this, this is not coming from, you know, um, legalizers, substance legalizers, which I happen to be, I, I think all substances should be legal. Um, but this is coming from the, the main body of the war on drugs 
groups. The majority of people, what percentage of people that use drugs actually harm themselves with it? What I'm asking you is overdose, uh, die, end up sick, have like serious issues as a result. What percentage do you think that actually happens to? Is this a real quiz? Uh, I would say somewhere in the ballpark of five to 10%. You're right. You're absolutely right. And if that's true, then the substances aren't the issue. Okay. There's something else going on that needs to be addressed. Okay. Because drugs are not what we think they are. And the war on drugs is not the solution we want it to be. Okay. The war, the war on drugs has created more of a problem with drugs than it is, than it is ever. It's the worst situation we could have ever imagined, right? The war on drugs is so bad that they can't even keep the drugs out of the prisons where they put the drug users. Okay. It's, it doesn't work. What they've done is they haven't created a war on drugs. They've created a war on drug users. So they've criminalized humans, right? Which separates them from society. We've labeled them further. First they were addicts. Now they're criminal addicts. Okay. So they're, they're less human than they've ever felt in their life. Now you're asking them to get their act together, but too bad you're a criminal addict. So you can't be a part of the private sector anymore. We don't want you around. How does that work? How does that, what, what message does that send anybody who's in an alley right now wondering if they're going to take another shot of heroin and possibly die or ask for help? What, what message as a culture does that send that person who's sitting in their house right now, who's debating whether or not they want to overdose with drugs? Cause I know that was me, you know, I know that was me that like when I went outside, I was always wondering what people were thinking about me, what people were saying about me, because it's not a message of love. You cannot help people with a war. You can't. We cannot fight people back to being connected in life. You have to love them there, right? You have to go to these people and you have to say, I love you whether you're using or you're not. I love you whatever, whatever state you're in. And if you need me, I'll sit with you because I, I, I don't want you to be alone or feel alone. That's what this world needs. These people, myself included, I needed to know that I hadn't been forgotten by the world, right? When sitting with myself had become too painful a place to be, I needed someone who was willing to sit with me, not try to fix me. That was the greatest solution that was ever offered to me was when I called my parents and I said, I need for help. And they said, all they said was, please come sit with us. They weren't trying to tell me that I'd done something wrong or that they had the answer. They just didn't want me to be alone. And that's what people who are struggling with substance abuse need to know that they're not alone. And the war on drugs makes them feel like they've done something wrong and that we don't want them around. And more people die every single day because of the war on drugs than people who overdose or, or accidentally overdose from drugs. The war on drugs is the biggest problem we've ever had in regards to substance abuse. Mm. Wow. That certainly gives us something to think about. That's more of that outside the box thinking. I, again, the majority of us do not think in those terms, but personally, and I, I am not speaking on behalf of the organization. I'm just yeah. speaking as myself. What you just said seems to make a great deal of sense to me. And recovery is something that is very much obviously near and dear to your heart. And you, you have this enormous heart now where you want to help people and you're actually now studying the connection between, you know, teaching people good, healthy nutrition and seeing what effect that has 
on the recovery process. And you're calling that the infinite study. We touched on that a little bit um, on the exam room live, but can you just kind of refresh our memory on that? Yeah. So the uh, infinite study is actually the very first controlled trial to investigate the effects of nutrition on addiction recovery outcomes. So there's never been a study ever done of any kind investigating what diet does to an individual in early addiction recovery. So early addiction recovery is defined by the first 24 hours of uh, checking into rehab uh, within from there to six months. And so this is actually a 10-week intervention. We, uh, we give people the opportunity to join the study within the first 24 hours of leaving detox and checking into re- residential treatment. And then they stay in the study for a minimum of three weeks, a maximum of 10 weeks. And what we do is we investigate the differences that, are, that arise as a result of either being on the treatment diet, which is a plant-based diet, or the control diet, which is the typical diet that's being served at the treatment center right now, which is a sort of an elevated Western diet. It's meat, eggs, and dairy, but it's a lot less processed food. And it's funny because actually when we were going over, like, well, this diet isn't, I mean, aside from the fact that they eat meat, eggs, and dairy, this, this diet isn't all that bad. There's a lot of fruits and vegetables in it. And so what we do know is that both are going to see improvement. But we want to measure what happens when an individual chooses to, when an individual eats a plant-based diet in recovery versus the traditional diet in recovery in regards to various outcomes. So your typical blood biomarkers like cholesterol, triglycerides, blood glucose, all those sorts of things, high sensitivity C-reactive protein, which is a uh, biomarker for inflammation, omega-3 levels, various vitamin levels. Yes, we know that. You and I know this. You work, you, you're part of the physician's committee. You know exactly what happens to the physical body as a result of going on a plant-based diet. So this isn't new. But what we're also looking at is emotional and psychological outcomes. So we're looking at things like anxiety, depression, resilience, which is essentially an, the ability for a person to be faced with a difficult experience and move through it with positivity to move through it in a way that creates positive change, uh, spiritual healing, self-compassion. And we're using validated scales for measuring all of these. And now we're also offering nutrition education to both groups. So the treatment group gets nutrition education on plant-based diet and the uh, control group gets nutrition education from like the ADA. Because we also know that there's a self-efficacy that is gained from understanding what you're doing for your body. They also do yoga. They also go outside and walk every single day. But we're controlling for both of these on both sides. So what we're seeing is, what is the result? And what we're finding is that there is a difference. That in fact, um, also that this this study is also a microbiome study. So we're, we're measuring the changes in the gut microbiome, the health of your gut, and how that impacts and how that relates to the validated scales of measuring anxiety, depression, resiliency, self-compassion. And what we're seeing is that the plant-based diet does offer better help. It does offer greater solution. Uh, I can't give you figures yet, but from what we're seeing, the study has been going on for seven months is that yes, there is an actual marked difference and it's, it's profound because we do these qualitative study uh, uh, study as well, where we capture stories. We interview people after they left, you know, tell us your experience. And a lot of these people have been in treatment two, three, four, five times. And they'll say, well, I was on the treatment diet and it just felt different. I just felt more connected. I felt more clear. Uh, it, I, I, I felt the world felt softer. We're hearing things like that. And that just like, uh, 
just fills my heart. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I'm not saying this is a solution for sobriety, right? I'm not saying that, that eating a plant-based diet makes an individual more sober. I want to like put an end to that state. I want to be very clear about that. But what we are showing is that there's a marked difference in an, uh, an individual's ability to, to do what every single human will have to do at some point in their life. And that is to face the difficult parts of themselves and the world around them and be able to move through that experience in a way that's positive with grace, create a positive change as a result of it. And that's something that every single human will have to do at some point in their life. The unique thing about addiction recovery is that individuals who check into addiction recovery are forced to do that work today or tomorrow is a lot less promised than the average individual because obviously tomorrow's not promised for anybody. But for these individuals, it's a lot less promised unless this work is done. And because nutrition has never been investigated, I think, it's, I think that that's a shame. And so I'm so proud and honored to be the person who's working with an unbelievable team to deliver this knowledge to the world so we can say, hey, look, I'm not saying that the recovery system was broken, but clearly it was a little incomplete. Here's another piece to your puzzle. I hope this helps. And in fact, I kind of know it will. And so we have Tara Kemp, who is the lead researcher. We have Drs. Dean and Aisha Sherzide who are our physicians on the study, who are the world's leading authorities on cognitive longevity. We have Dr. Frank Cusimano, who's one of the, you know, he's probably one of the most brilliant minds in the microbiome field out there. He's an amazing individual. We've, we've consulted with people like Dr. Elizabeth Winings, uh, Dr. Michael Clapper. Uh, I mean, Dr. Scott Stoll contributed um, uh, literature to for handouts to, to, to the participants. We have but it was amazing. I never anticipated the response that it would have, but I just sort of put it out there. I said, this is what, this is what my life is going to be. I want to do this. And I put it out there and it was like the world showed up, you know, like I didn't ask for, you know, I didn't go around asking Dr. Clapper, Hey, will you consult on this? I was talking about it. He was there and he goes, can I sit down with you at lunch and talk to you? I want to talk to you about some things. Scott Stoll is like, can I contribute my literature to handouts? Sure, absolutely. I mean, like, <laughs> who would say no, right? <laughs> I mean, Dean and Aisha, I asked them to consult, just to be a consultant on the study. And they said, we don't want to be consultants. We want to be the physicians on the study. Like, we're in. It's just been, it's just been unbelievable. So just, I'm so excited. Um, I'm very, very proud uh, to, be, to be doing this. And, and I feel like it's going to be, for now, my life's work. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, geez, Louise, what a, what a study. So you say you're, you're seven months in. I'm curious, though, um, the last time we spoke, you were talking about um, people can still contribute uh, right now to help continue the study. I think you were looking for help specifically on the uh, microbiome part, correct? Right. Yeah, because we, you know, the, the, the study's 12 months. Um, and so we'll, we'll complete the, the capturing of participants um, and the capturing of data. But the one thing we have is we, we want to send the microbiome samples out in, in batches, in like two batches. And so we, we put up a GoFundMe uh, campaign to pay for the cost for the microbiome. So there's a GoFundMe campaign. Uh, if you go to GoFundMe and type in infinite study, you'll see a video about the infinite study. You can contribute to that GoFundMe campaign, which is donated directly to the nonprofit, uh, which is funding the study. So yeah would really appreciate it. 
And we'll go ahead and put a link to that in the show notes, the episode notes as well. So you can just click that right there and, and make your contribution. Uh, last question for you. Uh, talk a little bit more about your hypothesis about the gut microbiome and what role this is going to play in overall recovery. It seems to me like the, the strong hypothesis is the healthier the gut, the higher the chance of having a successful recovery here. That is, that is the belief here? Yeah. So, you know, uh, lucky enough, I'm lucky to be very uh, good friends with Dr. Will Bolswitz. Um, so uh, fiber fueled. Exactly. So if anybody's interested in, in, in maybe the best book I've ever read on gut health, I highly recommend going and reading fiber fueled. In fact, he was just on the rich roll podcast. So he, that episode is out now. So if anybody's listening, hasn't heard it, go check it out. But what we're, you know, everyone has heard the thing, the saying, uh, 90% of your serotonin over 50% of your dopamine is produced in the gut. And yes, that's true. But those neurotransmitters can't cross the blood-brain barrier, so they don't make it to your brain, right? Your brain actually produces the dopamine and serotonin that your brain uses. But in order to facilitate that production, there are nutrients that are produced in the gut that do cross the blood-brain barrier that are necessary for creating those neurotransmitters. And so the healthier the gut, the healthier and more capable your body is of making those neurotransmitters in the brain because of things like GABA, NAD, uh, things like that. And I'm not an expert, but uh, essentially we also know that we've heard the term leaky gut, right? So you have these, these interlocking membranes that are weakened over the course of time as a result of uh, foods that harm the gut, meat, eggs, dairy, inflammatory oils, things like that, uh, refined sugars. The same thing occurs with the brain, right? The blood brain barrier is, is an identical interlocking uh, membrane, right? That weakens the same way. So brain fog is a result of impaired gut health. You repair, you repair it the exact same way. So we also know that a diet that heals the gut is lower in foods that have something called arachidonic acid. Right? This is a negligent long chain omega-6 fatty acid that's highly inflammatory. We know from epidemiological studies, and I know epidemiology is correlation, not causation, but still, that the lower the amount of arachidonic acid, the lower the, the, the amount of depression, anxiety, and stress an individual experience. Now, I'm not saying that they don't experience depression. I'm saying the experience of it isn't as intense. You are just a, a role model and a hero and an inspiration. Oh. And uh, I mean, I... I absolutely love having you on the show, man, because every single time I walk away feeling so inspired talking to you, that triggers the dopamine response in my brain. I will tell you that right now, man. I appreciate you. Uh, I, I, I do. I want to say one more thing. Um, so this is August. Um, August is the month that I attempted suicide. It's also um, uh, national overdose awareness day is on the 31st of this month. Um, and we have, uh, we're, we're going to lose, about 70,000 people this year to drug overdose, maybe more because of COVID. And I'm not saying COVID causes drug overdose. I'm just saying the fact that we're locked away. We're separated from those meaningful bonds. Um, and I've lost uh, 10 friends. And I just, you know, every time I have an opportunity to share, I just want to say to people that if you know somebody who's struggling, if you know somebody who, who just needs to be reminded that they matter, don't wait you know, call them up. They don't, people who are in, in that kind of pain, they don't want you to have a solution for them. That's not what they're looking for. We're looking for evidence that somebody sees value in us, that we matter to somebody and to the world. 
Remind them of that by simply saying, can I come over and have a cup of coffee with you? Do you want to go for a walk? Can I, can I be those arms that will wrap around you and give you a hug because you can't do it yourself? Can I be that voice to say I love you because you've forgotten how to do so? Can I be the shoulders that will bear the weight of your world because apparently it's gotten too heavy? Just be that person that's willing to be there with somebody who's struggling. It will surprise you because I'm telling you, it may seem very, very insubstantial. Oh, he just wants me to go and hang out with somebody? Yeah, that's really what I'm asking you. But I'm telling you, for that individual who's struggling, for me, this month, eight years ago, the act of somebody asking me to come and sit with them softened my entire world. Be that person for somebody this month. I'm begging you because I've lost too many friends. You don't, you don't want to experience this. You have an opportunity to remind somebody that they matter. So take it. Wow. Again, just I, I don't even know how to respond other than with gratitude and to say thank you, my friend. I appreciate your time so very much. I appreciate you. Thank you, man. That interview was recorded a few weeks ago, and even though it's no longer August, that message is as important as ever. You don't need a month or a specific day to be there for someone who's struggling. Listen to what Adam said. Asking someone just to come hang out so that they can feel loved and appreciated that can go a lot further than you ever imagine. Because you never know. You just never know how much that person could be hurting. Adam is really one of a kind. He almost died, but he woke up from his attempt. He literally picked himself up off of the floor, dusted himself off, and then faced the pain. He dealt with those issues. And now, he is that person who is there for someone else in need. And I can think of no better person to be at the helm of the infinite study than Adam. The study, it explores the effects of a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet on physical health, on mental health, and on addiction recovery. It's all very complicated science, but in a way, I wonder if it can be simple too. Because think about it. You feel better about yourself when you take care of yourself. And eating a healthy diet is certainly a large part of self-care. So you feel good about yourself and your mind is clear and your body is feeling better physically. Who wouldn't want to continue down that path? You're happy. You're happy and then maybe you are less inclined to revert to old habits. That's the way I see it. And I hope those who are participating in that study find the help that they need to go down a path similar to Adam. Find that will to live. And maybe find pleasure in rewarding the body with oranges instead of opioids. 
And you can find a link to contribute to Adam's infinite study in the episode notes. Let's change gears now and open up the doctor's mailbag. Every weekday on The Exam Room Live, we welcome one of our doctors or experts onto the show to answer your questions. And today's is a great one from a viewer who was looking for help as she transitions to a plant-based diet. And her situation is one that a lot of people find themselves challenged by. And that is, how do you find support at home? Here with some help is Dr. Neil Barnard. This question comes to us from Jackie. It's a really great one that so many people face. She writes, I want to start eating a vegan diet after reading more about it, but my spouse has no interest. Can our relationship be as healthy as a plant-based diet or is it doomed? Oh, you know, first of all, Jackie, thank you for your question. You are not alone. There are so many cases where one spouse, one partner, uh, one family member says, wow, a plant-based diet, that's fantastic. And then the other family members think, you're not going to push that on me, are you? It's not just food. If one family member starts decides to stop smoking, stop drinking, start exercising, the other family members are worried what it means for them. Okay, a few tips. Uh, number one, recognize that other family members, even who are resistant, recognize that they have good intentions. They mean well. Yes, that person who is, who is dragging their feet saying, I'm not so sure about that, they mean well. Here, here's what I'm saying. They, they grew up with the idea that you needed a balance of foods in your diet. Uh, you need some meat, some dairy, some, some uh, grains and vegetables and fruits. And they, even though you have logic on your side and you have the very best science um, going for you, in the back of their mind, they kind of have their fourth grade nutrition teacher telling them that they need meat for protein and so forth. So anyway, they mean well. It's just as hard to overcome that. Okay, all right, so what am I going to do about it? Um, I would suggest several things. Number one, there's nothing like um, sharing some education. Now, often people don't want to read a book. If they do, great. There's lots of them to choose from. But they will often watch a movie. So air pop some popcorn, sit down and watch Game Changers, What the Health, Forks Over Knives, Invisible Vegan. There's a million of these videos that will really pump everybody up. And then if you, des- if, if you decide together, why don't we do this as a short-term experiment? You want to do three weeks on a vegan diet with me? Somebody would have to be pretty hard-hearted to say no to that. Um, if the answer is no, you want to go vegan, that's up to you, but I'm not going anywhere, anywhere near it. At that point, you have to have a heart-to-heart talk. And you have to say, okay, but here is why this is important to me. Lay it out and say, I'd like you not to tease me. And I'd like you to support me as much as, as you can during this time. Um, and finally, a lot of times couples where one family member isn't quite there and the other is full on vegan, uh, sometimes you have to agree what you're going to do at home versus out. So in the home, I don't want the animal products here. Uh, if we're at a restaurant, whatever you have, um, that's up to you. So good luck. You're making a good decision. It's a normal thing to have a few bumps in the road, but chances are with your good example, you're going to be able to convince uh, your family to follow your lead. 
And, you know, I, it was kind of similar for my wife and I when I first made the decision to to go vegan. And I told her and she was already she was like, you're already such a healthy eater. Why in the world do you want to do this? And I said, well, look, I tell you what, just give me two hours. Watch this documentary with me and then let's have this conversation again. And sure enough, right after she sat down and she watched that with me, she gave me that time. That was all I was asking for was for two hours. She got on board with it as well. And it, it really did. It just took having an adult conversation without some ribs and jabs and it's amazing what can happen that was really good advice dr barnard you know part part of it is also is that if it's in a movie it's not you talking it's somebody else sometimes the voice of authority and so uh, uh it, it sometimes it takes more than one uh it, it takes somebody else to reinforce the message maybe a family doctor can help something like that but you'll get there And if you ever have a question for Dr. Barnard or any one of our other experts, I would love for you to join us over on The Exam Room Live. That airs Monday through Friday at noon Eastern, both on Facebook and on YouTube. Always such a great time diving into the latest studies and science and nutrition information. And of course, dialing up tons and tons and tons of inspiration. And here is some special good news for those of you who live in Texas. You've heard us talk about the Barnard Medical Center for months now. And now we are thrilled to announce that telemedicine appointments are available for residents of the Lone Star State as well. And you can schedule an appointment with the doctors and dietitians who can help you achieve your health goals. Whether that means losing weight or combating diabetes or heart disease, or maybe you're just beginning to transition to a plant-based diet. Well, they are here to help. So make an appointment today by calling 202-527-7500, or you can visit barnardmedical.org for a full list of states where services are available. And as we wrap up the show today, I wanted to pause and take a second to just say thank you because there was a time in my life where I did not think I was going to live to see 30 years old. I didn't think 30 was in the cards for me. I was massively overweight, woefully addicted to food, binging on 10,000 calories a day and all of that fat the salt, the oil. It was clogging my arteries. I could barely walk more than a few steps without my chest beginning to tighten. Literally felt like an elephant was sitting on my chest. And my grandfather, he died before I was born from a series of heart attacks. And I just knew, I knew that that would be my fate as well. But last Friday, I celebrated my 38th birthday. And the fact that I am here, able to speak with you, hopefully inspiring and educating you so that you then can also lead a healthier life. This is not a privilege that I take lightly. And it means the world to me 
that you would welcome this show into your life. Because that is the best present I could ever possibly ask for. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. And I also want to say thank you one more time to our guests today, Adam Sud and Dr. Neil Barnard. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>